Good morning. I'm going to invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, and we'll continue our public reading of Scripture as we prepare for the message this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 11. Verse 12 reads, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. But what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in, such, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, It is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of men to do under heaven during a few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for every gift that we have received in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you have indeed come to us, that you have condescended, that you have broken into our death to give new life. And Lord, may every moment of our time together be dedicated to worshiping you in response to that, to giving you the praise that you deserve May we respond, Lord, in our singing and in our listening, in our prayers, but also in the way that we live our lives each week. 
I pray for us, God, that you would sanctify us, that you would cause us to grow in obedience and and fervor for obedience, that even as we go through this book of Ecclesiastes that calls into question every human answer for living, that we would find meaning in serving you, that we would find you as our whole joy, the chief purpose of our life to glorify you and that we would together build your kingdom which lasts for eternity. Lord, we lift up this morning as a congregation those who are hurting, those who have lack, those who are sick. Father, we ask for those that are are in recovery and those who even now are struggling with various illness, that you would heal them. We ask that you would use us, Father, to support them and to comfort them, and that you would use all of these situations for your glory. We ask that you would instill such great hope and peace and joy in all of our trials as we see the end is set before us. Even as we know our current situations, we also know what we have already in Christ. Cause us to be your church, to work as your hands and feet, and to increasingly know your commands and walk in them, we pray. We ask this for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Ecclesiastes uh, paints a bit of a bleak picture of life under the sun. And so much so that some interpreters have said, you kind of have to take it uh, with a grain of salt. You you kind of have to balance the cynicism of the preacher with the youthful and somewhat naive optimism of the Proverbs. But the Spirit of God had a purpose for inspiring this book to be written and to be received in its own right as the very Word of God. In Ecclesiastes, God exposes the meaningless of life in a cursed world in order to create a hunger for something better. Ecclesiastes asks the existential questions, that is about the meaning of life, to push us towards faith and contentment in God. And so while Proverbs might teach us that if you work hard, you'll have food, Ecclesiastes is going to say, but so what? Both are true. Death means that there's nothing that lasts. All is hevel. This is the word repeated throughout Ecclesiastes. Some translations say meaningless. Others, like ours that we read this morning, says vanity. None of these are are really such a great translation. This word literally in, in Hebrew means vapor, a mist smoke. And it's talking about this ephemeral quality or fleeting nature of all things of life. Everything that you have, everything that you work for, everything that you wear, all of your relationships, they will all someday come to nothing because of death. The earth has been subjected to this futility. And so Ecclesiastes writes to those who are seeking to replace illusion with truth. The earth has created in our worldly systems, all of these illusions to say, oh, I've got something to be worth living for, something that I'm working for, some carrot that's set before me so I keep marching off in this direction. Ecclesiastes writes to poke holes in simplistic answers, affirm the doubts and cynicism we should rightly feel about our existence, all while providing a guide through them. 
In the passage we begin looking at this morning, the preacher points out the inadequacies of pleasure and toil as legitimate purposes for living, while rightly charting true pleasure and the benefits of hard work. Even wisdom is shown to fall short of accomplishing everything that we wish of it, while at the same time we are provided the very wisdom needed to navigate our current situations. And it attests to the fact of human weakness and inability, all while equipping us to change our lives for the better. And so this, our second foray into Ecclesiastes, begins in verse 12 where the author moves from a third-person voice speaking about the preacher and then assumes the first-person perspective of the preacher, which is an allusion to King Solomon. And Solomon is used for this purposes. For in his life, Solomon was known for his legendary wisdom, wealth, wives, and wonders. And this is what makes him a perfect representation for the author's purposes. And to enhance the impact of this presentation... This whole section is a literary form borrowed from the monarchs of the ancient world when they would celebrate their accomplishments. In an effort to cause their names to be remembered after their deaths, many ancient emperors and kings would have a royal inscription carved into stone. And then it would last forever, right? And this would detail the greatness of all of their accomplishments. Many rulers throughout the ages have uh, had such a thing created in stone so that we would know about them. One famous emperor, famously all that remains of him is the stone he inscribed. Nobody knows anything of his empire, only that there's a stone saying he had a great one. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, when the king realizes that he will not possess the eternal life he desires, he turns instead then to try to make a legacy for himself. And and the author's just such an inscription so that he will be remembered after his death. Now, numerous ancient Near Eastern texts have been discovered that describe the glories of a king and celebrate his reign. And these are fictional royal autobiographies. They were written after the death of a king, yet speak in the first person as if the king were talking about himself. And this became a common literary style to to glorify the wonders of an ancient king to write about what they had accomplished. And so Ecclesiastes here adopts this style of the inscriptions and the royal autobiographies, but uses the form, ironically, as a parody to demonstrate that all of these accomplishments are really nothing more than vapor, hevel. And so there's a very, very close comparison. It's almost uncanny the way that the author writes exactly like these kings that would glorify themselves and talk about all of their long-lasting achievements. And instead, in Ecclesiastes, we get this section here. It goes a little further on than what we've read this morning. We'll talk about it in the coming weeks. But it's this declaration of all the wonderful things that I've accomplished as king. But there's this great difference Where Ecclesiastes, it all ends in nothing. No remembrance, no eternal benefit. And so the preacher repeatedly makes the braggadocious claims, which are typical formulaic statements of the kings who boasted of their competence and achievements. Uh, Verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 16 I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. 
And in chapter 2, verse 7, I had also great possessions, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. And verse 9, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Now, this doesn't actually fit Solomon very well because he was preceded only by his father, King David, as king in Jerusalem. But what the author is saying in this satire is that all over the whole history of man, the wealth and accomplishments of all earthly kings are ultimately hevel, vanity, striving after wind. The boasting of their royal inscriptions and autobiographies are a joke to this author. The reality of death has made all of their achievements lead only to despair because they are soon gone and forgotten. And so early in this chapter, we learned that everything under the sun is hevel, vapor, mist, smoke. And following this are now given three examples of things that people live their lives for, which are all ultimately fleeting, worthless to pursue, like trying to hold mist or grab the wind. Pleasure, wisdom, and work. And I think this almost encapsulates, encapsulates sorry, uh, everything that people live for, work for, try to accomplish in this life. And it begins with an introduction to the experiment and the ultimate findings in the remainder of chapter 1. Verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. The first illusion that we need to have shattered for us is that the pursuit of knowledge fulfills life and gives a person permanent significance. All pursuit of knowledge and wisdom are vanity, hevel, a vapor doomed to disappear in the face of time and death and are without eternal value. Second, he states here that it is a hopeless task. You can't know enough because the answers can't always be found. You can't count what is lacking. That is, missing data can't be taken into account. Some problems cannot be solved, and some information we can never find. Even the most brilliant, even the most highly educated, cannot answer some of the fundamental questions about life. Science and philosophy hold no ultimate answers. The third thing he states here is all of this is set by God. This bad business, verse 13, of intellectual pursuit has been willed by God. The implication is that God has made it a crooked path. Not in a moral sense, but in that it doesn't lead to where one wishes. And this is, again, stated explicitly in chapter 7, verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? So the thrust of verses 13 to 15 is that there is something fundamentally wrong with life on earth. And since the world is as it is, has come about as a result of God's will, there is absolutely nothing humans can do about it. Now, you might think that this isn't very good, what the author is saying. You might think that the author has accused God here of committing an evil act. 
But this is exactly what the rest of the Bible also says of God, that in response to human evil and rebellion, God imposed a curse upon the world, Genesis 3.17, imposing a futility to all earthly toil so that we would ultimately find our hope only in Him. It says in Romans 8, 20 to 21, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So God is the one who has set some of these paths crooked. He is the one who has obfuscated things so that we cannot find all that we would like to find out. Romans 8 goes on to tell us that we are groaning for rescue alongside this frustrated creation, which is exactly what we are directed towards at the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. One of my many essential flaws is that I often want to build an idealistic paradise on earth to essentially recreate Eden. You know, I I just think with hard work and the right know-how, we should be able to form a utopian society, right? If you've known me for very long, I always have grand ideas of how we're going to make everything work just perfectly. The preacher laments that this is, not only is this naturally impossible, because death makes all progress meaningless, but that God has made the path of human wisdom futile. God has stood between. He has subjected the nature to futility. We will not be able to create utopia. 1 Corinthians 3, 19-21 says, The wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. God has subjected even wisdom to futility. We can't accomplish what we would like to with our wisdom. Ecclesiastes drives us to hopeless despair in all things human that we might be driven to hope only in the Lord Jesus. The fundamental human problem, what we are suffering here, is that there is a lack of harmony between our aspirations and the very nature of reality itself as set by a sovereign God. And so the genuine wisdom offered in Ecclesiastes is is to live according to what is set by God. Any other way will result in despair and weariness like striving after wind. True wisdom is to live in reality, to live as though what is really true is really true. We saw this in Joseph, right? When God announced that he was going to send a famine upon Egypt and Joseph just lived as though that was going to be a true reality, he was considered very wise. True wisdom is just to treat God's word as though it's true, because it is, and to live as reality is. And this is what Ecclesiastes calls us to. Continues in verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. Very humble here. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom there is vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. 
Madness, folly, these are commonly the antithesis to wisdom. So in saying that he strove to know wisdom and to also know madness and folly, the preacher is saying that he will investigate thoroughly in his experiment. He will try everything all the way from wisdom to folly. There's nothing that he hasn't tried. He's saying, I tried it all. I lived the right way, wisdom. I lived life the wrong way, foolishness. And nothing brought meaning. It was all like trying to grab the wind. You see, rather than to give life meaning, wisdom and knowledge only dispel our illusions. Trying to figure out how to change the realities of this heavy life only produces pain and agitation. Because the more that we understand the enormity and complexity of the problems, the more apparent human limits become. I got into the news, started watching YouTube videos and listening to podcasts and all the ideas of, of how we can work on our health and our health care system, how we can, can work in our government and our legal system. I've got, I've got amazing ideas. And you know what? I came to, even just before I started studying Ecclesiastes, man, this is a waste of time. Even if I could come up with the perfect idea, which I always try to, even if my mind were not fallen and were, were not broken and were able to just comprehend all the complexities, well, we would be dealing with humans all the way along. What a waste of time. Easier to herd cats, I often say. This is what the author is talking about when he talks about the pursuit of, of wisdom and knowledge. It's ultimately a chasing of the wind. We can't change the parts of reality that are so vexing to us. The more that we understand and the more that we comprehend, the more we're like, oh, how hopeless is this? Now, again, people have, have thrown out Ecclesiastes sometimes because of statements like this. But let's just be honest with ourselves. This is the Word of God and this is true. So after this introduction of the total experiment... And giving its final assessment here at the start, Ecclesiastes begins the first experiment, and it's the one that we're going to look at this morning, pleasure. Chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart, come now and I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now, it's important here that we understand that pleasure here can be translated joy or gladness, even goodness. It's described as a gift of God several times in Ecclesiastes and the rest of the Bible. And so it's vital that we understand that this is not forbidden pleasure that's being investigated here, but all pleasure. If we think of this as, well, he tried all the forbidden things, and of course that didn't bring fulfillment, uh, that's going to help. We're going to miss the point here. The point isn't just that forbidden things didn't bring him any satisfaction, but all pursuit of pleasure, even good things. So the preacher doesn't divide pleasure into categories of moral and immoral. Instead, he shares his experience that good things are not ultimately good in themselves. Having discovered that there are no answers to be found for the meaning of life in learning, Solomon gave himself over fully to hedonism, seeking pleasure in food, drink, wisdom, sorry, food, drink, women, and accomplishments. Isn't this the way 
We often turn to pleasure, if not for ultimate meaning, then for distraction when we can't find one. So when we lack meaning, we turn to pleasure. Most of us make our decisions based on what will maximize our pleasure and our happiness. And Solomon was the wealthiest man that ever existed and had more access to pleasure than we could dream of. And so he concludes that the pursuit of pleasure does not satisfy and is ultimately futile. Now, throughout the book, the preacher will recommend enjoying life, to take pleasure in food and in drink and in companionship. But here he warns that pleasure itself cannot give meaning to our lives. One cannot live for pleasure because pleasure will not satisfy. It soon ceasing to be pleasure. Again, the king tried everything in his experiment so that we don't have to. He tried both the right way and the wrong way to experience experience pleasure. Verse 3, I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly. So he's saying he did both. He indulged pleasure with wisdom and with foolishness. With wine, he tried being a self-controlled connoisseur of the finest vintages, And he also tried foolishly overindulging. He tried everything, both the right way and the wrong way to handle pleasure. Wine can be very dangerous, but according to the Bible as a whole, and Ecclesiastes in particular, wine can be a joyous thing when used as God intended. And so Ecclesiastes 9-7 commands us, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. And according to Ecclesiastes 10, 19, wine gladdens life. But though it is a good thing, a God-given thing, there is no meaning, no purpose for life found in a bottle. The experiment continues. Verse 4, I made great works. I planted houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them with all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great. And surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done. And the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, it was all vanity. And striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Again, these verses follow these ancient Near Eastern royal inscriptions very closely as a parody of their self-promoting announcements, but the ending is so different, showing that the author is refuting the summation that their achievements were enduring. Here, the Solomon-like character has accomplished greater things than all the kings before him, and yet, in the end, it was all hevel, a vanity and a striving after the wind. Solomon built great houses. He he put the, the, the Saudis to shame even today. He built God's house, a temple so grand that after its destruction, when the second temple was built, the elders of Israel wept, Ezra 3.12, 
when comparing it to the former glory of Solomon's temple. Then Solomon built his own house. It was more than four times bigger and took his workers and slaves almost twice as long to build. He also built a second house like this, 1 Kings 7, 8, for Pharaoh's daughter whom he had taken in marriage. Kings tells us that he built houses and shrines for each of his wives, of which he had 700. So Solomon built 700 homes and 700 shrines on top of these magnificent palaces, four times larger than the most amazing building that people could think of in that day. He built for himself gardens and parks planted with every kind of fruit tree. Now this phrase, all kinds of fruit tree, is uh, used three times in the creation account describing the Garden of Eden. The, The second term, parks, is derived from the Persian word which from where we ultimately derive our word paradise. So he created gardens and and paradise. And this is exactly what is being described by the tree-filled gardens and parks watered by man-made reservoirs. He then populated this paradise with the people that were his own possession. Verse 7, male and female slaves and the children born to them. Solomon didn't have Spotify or iTunes, but he didn't need them because he could buy the band Both male and female singers belonged to him. And then he turned to sexual pleasure. And so in addition to his 700 princess wives, he gathered a harem of 300 concubines. Now these are women treated solely as objects for the purpose of pleasure. Solomon literally tried to create a new Garden of Eden. He had all the wealth and power possible for a human And so, of course, the thing he wanted most, the only thing that would satisfy is utter paradise as God created it. This Solomon tried to recreate, but in the end, as with all human projects, it was all hevel. Notice how frequently for myself appears. He just keeps on saying, I did this for myself. I built this for myself and that for myself. This is the gospel of selfishness. When comfort becomes our idol, we seek to return to the Garden of Eden by trying to create for ourselves what only God can provide. We seek to replace God and become the creator. We think of ourselves as little creators who are, who are creating little paradises, little utopias. What can we do today to make life pleasurable and comfortable? What can we do in this life to make it all just so? Some of us, it's not so much more of a a comfortable place to sit, but everything being ordered just so. Having a garden that doesn't have a weed, that doesn't have a stray plant. We want to order things in such a way, and we take great pleasure in this. Solomon tried both. He tried pleasure in accomplishments and pleasure uh, of just imbibing and, and taking in all the things. This, we need to understand, is not our planet. We cannot recreate Eden here. Wisdom is to live in light of reality, and the reality is that with all of creation, we groan and long for the return of Christ, awaiting it with patience through hope. We are already told in Scripture that we are not going to accomplish the paradise that we want here. In this world, you will have trouble. All who seek to live a godly life will be persecuted. 
It's not only a foolish endeavor. It's not only a hopeless endeavor, but it's sinful. It's to walk outside of faith. Faith believes the word of God. And God tells us many times in the New Testament that we are not going to enjoy paradise until Jesus returns. The preacher concludes his search for pleasure by saying that he denied himself nothing, verse 10. Whatever my eye desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. He had the most success, the best houses, the most possessions, the richest lifestyle, the most sophistication, the finest wines. He held the most incredible parties and feasts. He had the greenest lawn. He had the best servants, more money than we can imagine possible. It says in in Kings that uh, silver was considered like rock. For all, for all intents and purposes. That's how much of it he had. He had military fame, popularity, endless entertainment, and as much sexual pleasure as anyone could ever indulge in. Even though he played out every one of his fantasies in real life, nothing fulfilled. In the end, verse 11, he says, it was all hevel, vanity, a striving after wind. And so in the end, we have a question When will you be happy? I will be happy when... What what goes into that blank for you? Listen to the Spirit of God speaking through Ecclesiastes. It will not work. It is a lie. It is hevel. All is fleeting. It will not satisfy. But pleasure is not a bad thing. We don't, we don't go from being hedonists to ascetics. We, we have a whole different view of, of life. Pleasure is not a bad thing. God invented it. He created us for pleasure. But to look for meaning and purpose in pleasure is to alienate ourselves from the God of all goodness who has provided them for us. It is not that we want too much but that we try to be satisfied with too little. The legitimate pleasures of this life are, are a byproduct of its first cause to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And this is how Ecclesiastes ends, chapter 12, verse 13, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. We are creatures not the creators of paradise. We have to remind ourselves. Someone like me, I have visions of how things are going to work out. I have to remind myself of this regularly. Oh, that's a fun idea, but remember how that's not going to work. Remember how I can't put any hope in that all my wonderful ideas are going to work out. I have it all mapped out just so. This isn't in my notes, but when I first was pastoring, I had an ideal church in my mind. I had it all figured out what the church needed to be like for it all just to work so well and we would just have such a wonderful time together if we would all just do my ideas. And I was reading Bonhoeffer and he talks about loving the church that exists, not your utopian church. This changed my life. This changed my ministry. I was able to love what God has done and enjoy what we have without being fixated on the utopian ideal. 
that will never be, because we're all just human. So we are creatures, not the creator of paradise. We are created with a purpose for pleasure, and that purpose is all that will satisfy. Everything else is a lie. We were created for pleasure, but the purpose of all lesser pleasures is to point us to the greatest and chief purpose of humanity, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We are welcomed in Ecclesiastes to enjoy pleasure. It doesn't tell us to, to steer away from pleasure. It tells us to enjoy all the things that we have. But to pursue pleasure is vanity, hevel, a chasing wind. Everything we do, we do it to the glory of God, enjoying the good things as gifts, not things that we have produced, not a paradise that we have grabbed onto, but things that are freely given and often pass away quickly. We can enjoy in the moment when we know that ultimate enjoyment is given to us already in Christ Jesus. I want to leave you with Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26. The psalmist writes about his joy in God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in repentance first. We have foolishly chased pleasure Maybe not in some wildly foolish hedonistic lifestyle, but we have tried to maximize pleasure by uh, wisdom and, and practical usage. We have sought to order things in our lives in just such a way so that we can enjoy this life more. And we haven't done so just in a way to enjoy the good things you've provided, but we've looked for comfort as an idol, something that would maybe give us ultimate fulfillment. And so, Lord, I repent of this. I pray that you would call us to repentance and transformation. Sanctify your church, we pray. God, it is my greatest prayer that you would make us, or make yourself, sorry, the chief joy of our lives. May we find true satisfaction in you. May we see all these good things as pointing to our God, all these earthly pleasures as things that are just a taste of the ultimate goodness that you are, we are promised in you. But may we not turn aside to pursue the things that this world has to offer. Lord, as we go to work, change our attitude entirely that we would work as unto the Lord, knowing that everything we have is a gift from you, not to pursue the pleasures that this world tells us will bring satisfaction. This insidious lie that we will find satisfaction in things, God, it's incredible that how foolish we can be, how quickly we forget. 
We buy this product. We buy this service. We take this trip, each time expecting something that we should already know will not come to us through this. Help us to look up from these small, insignificant pleasures, fleeting, heavy pleasures, and turn to find our satisfaction in you. I ask this for the glory of Jesus, in which we will find our ultimate satisfaction. Amen.